Hi, I'm Gary and this is episode 134 of EV Musings, a podcast about renewables, electric vehicles and things that are interesting to electric vehicle owners. On the show today, we'll be looking at energy, the national grid and how it's working to help decarbonise energy and promote the use of electric vehicles. This season of the podcast is sponsored by ZapMap. Before we start, I wanted to apologise for the audio quality on this discussion. National Grid are, understandably, very cautious about what comes and goes through their firewall and VPN. After all, you don't want the backbone of the country's energy supply held to ransom by some oil like me inadvertently bringing a virus into their system. So they have a fairly tight security restrictions, which prohibited the usual software I use for podcast interviews. As a result, we used Zoom, which apparently is approved within the National Grid. The result is that the audio has a little more of a telephone quality than I would have liked, but it's still reasonably clear and the interview is well worth your time. Our main topic of discussion today is energy. One key driver for enabling a smarter usage of energy, more electric vehicles and charge points and localised microgrids such as the one I have on my roof, is an underlying grid that can handle that and is set up for the future. In an earlier episode, we talked about one link in that chain, which is the DNOs. And we had Stuart Reed from SSE on to discuss how DNOs fit into the electricity supply chain. But there's a lot more to grids and electricity provision than just that. So to talk about this in a little bit more detail, I'm joined by Graham Cooper. He's the head of future markets at the National Grid. Welcome, Graham. I think I got your, your title right there, didn't I? Yeah, absolutely right, Gary. No problem. Um, I want to discuss exactly what National Grid does and how it fits in the overall picture in a moment. But first, just a little bit about you. Just explain your role. What does the head of future markets do exactly? Oh, that's a really good one. And I ask myself the same question most days. Um, no, so, so, so if we think about how uh, grid networks have traditionally responded, and then that'll tell you why my role is different. So if you think about it, networks have historically responded to mature energy markets. And generally, that's been a few handful of big power stations. If we think about the world we're moving into, lots of people are able to generate. There are lots of different energy participants. And therefore, these are new and different. And so effectively, my role is to try and make sure that National Grid is ready to respond to those new markets. Now, the biggest things on my on my agenda, um, you know, very much broadly, are um, decarbonisation of transport because that's a brand new market segment, um, and decarbonisation of heat. But at the other end of our wires is um, the huge growth in scale of things like offshore wind. So yes, you could argue that offshore wind is a market that's sort of um, been around a little while. Yes, but in grid terms, it's still an, a new market, and the pace at which it's growing is going faster. So. My role really is to observe those markets, to try and understand what's going on. What does that mean for National Grid? And how does National Grid become the enabler of those new markets? And my role isn't to deliver anything as far as built wires. I actually pass it to our uh, our engineering teams. We've got some really great engineering teams to actually do the building of this. Um, you know, We're a great engineering-led business, but what we realize is that policy, um, targets, all those externalities are driving these future markets. So it's a, quite a long answer to a short question, but it sort of frames kind of what I do. But it's sort of quite uncertain, really, because uh, every day is different. Uh, and I think that's good about a job. There's nothing worse than working in a, a job where everything's the same, is there? Um, what's Now, your route to National Grid was quite interesting. What's the story of the letter you sent to uh, the National Grid CEO, John Pettigrew? <laughs> yeah, OK. So, so look, I'm... Um, 
Um, I've done three really disruptive industries in my career, right? So I'm a, I'm a civil engineer by training. Um, I built uh, mobile phone uh, networks across Europe in my first career. Um, so that was very disruptive. So, you know, it, it's a technology disruptor pushed by government, pulled by consumer, significant infrastructure, strong regulator. Um, you know, there isn't an instruction book to going to mobile from when you've had fixed lines. Um, and one of the roles that I had in that job was I worked for a company called Gridcom. Now, Gridcom was uh, the telecoms company or the telecoms division of National Grid. And my role was putting telecoms kit on National Grid towers and National Grid gas holders. So next time you watch the cricket at the Oval, look in the background at the gas holder. There's mobile phone mast equipment on the top and I put it there. <laughs> so and my relationship with National Grid goes back, you know, further. Then after doing that for uh, about 10 or 11 years, I realized there was going to be lots of consolidation in that telecoms market. Yeah, we built networks. Um, it was all about billing and branding. Yeah, that was a time when we were going to having things like picture messaging and smartphones. So I then uh, started a family, wanted a job with a bit more of an ethical interest. So I went into the wind industry and very naively, I thought um, a, mo you know, a wind turbine is no different to a mobile phone mast, right? Big lump of concrete in the ground, mm -hmm. steel bit in the middle, uh, working at height, remote grid connections, um, a spinny bit on the top was the only difference. The cold reality for me is there was lots of my skills that were transferable, but not all of them. But if you think again about that growth in the wind industry, it was a technology disruptor. It was pushed by government. It was pulled by consumer. It had a strong infrastructure and a strong regulator. So actually, the disruption in the wind and renewable sector was you know, not really any different to the, my world in the telecom sector. But the biggest challenge for me as a wind farmer was the grid. It was one of the most expensive elements. And it was the one of the things that was least manageable because it's done by somebody else. And it was the thing that often set the time scale for the delivery of my project. So my very last wind farm was a wind farm called Windy Standard 2. And it was actually my second wind farm, but was delivered as number eight. It was actually delivered nearly nine years late due to delays in the grid. And nine years is quite some amount of time. Mm -hmm. So on the day of our connection energization, you know, we cut ribbons all that sort of good stuff. And my investors, so I had £147 million of the investors, um, asked me to let Mr. Pettigrew knew exactly what they thought of um, grid networks. So I wrote a, a, a professionally obnoxious letter. I mean, I wasn't rude, but it was, <laughs> it was uncomfortable reading. And what was really delightful to me, actually, and this, is, and this is where even today I have this huge respect for John Pettigrew, is in less than 24 hours of receiving that letter, he picked up the phone personally and he rang me. And the very first words were, Graham, I am sorry. Now, that's a really, really good spot to start a conversation when you're a bit Absolutely. angry. Yes. So, so what, what was nice was National Grid as a business said, OK, much to learn here. Come talk to us. Um, and that's what I found within National Grid is the realisation that we're the enabler because if we're not the enabler, that by default makes us the barrier. Mm -hmm. And so I was invited into National Grid to talk around what I had observed, what could change, what would benefit the industry. And about three weeks later, in a slightly uncomfortable conversation, I was offered a job that didn't exist, which was to lead all of the work on decarbonizing transport. So again, if we loop that as a full wrap, look, if you think about decarbonizing transport, it's a technology disruptor. It's pushed by government. It's pulled by consumer with a, a strong, strong regulator. So actually, 
I've done three disruptive industries and they're all exactly the same. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and so, so it, what it's done is it's built a lot of resilience, but it's also built in my psyche, the ability that no one knows all the answers. It's about collaboration and cooperation. Um, and, uh, you know, just because you think you know the way that it has been done doesn't guarantee that that's the way it will be done in, in the future. Oh, that's uh, very, very true. I've hit that myself in the uh, in the past. Explain to the listeners now, I think it's it's about the point where we should be saying this is what National Grid does and this is what they don't do. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is a good one. This is the one thing that I'm often challenged with. You know, people say, well, I generate solar on my roof and, and I sell my power to National Grid. Uh, no, you don't. <laughs> so let's clarify this for, for, for anybody who's, who's, I guess, not in the energy market. So um, the best way to describe National Grid electricity transmission, uh, the nearest way I can find to describe it, is we're like na- the, the Highways England of the road network. So Highways England provide the roads, but they don't put the cars and trucks on them. National Grid provide the transmission network, which are the motorways of the energy system, but we don't put the energy on there. So um, we don't make electricity, we don't buy electricity, and we don't sell electricity. We are simply the conduit from where it is made. So I'm thinking about nuclear power stations, gas power stations, offshore wind farms, onshore wind farms, large-scale solar, interconnectors, you know, wires to other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and the consumption to so the downstream end, which is effectively my customers are either very large consumers of energy. So I'm thinking steel plants, glass works, mm-hmm. or they're the distribution system. So I think in a you know, previous um, episode, you, you spoke to Stuart from, from SSE. Yeah. Um, my power flows down into his network for him to provide the local roads of the, of the energy system into people's homes. So that's what the DNOs do, the distribution network operators. But that means National Grid doesn't buy it, make it or sell it. We're just the conduit to get it from where it's made to where it's consumed. Now, that's the electricity transmission piece. For clarity for your listeners, I bet they're thinking about, yes, but who drives the control room? Okay, so yes, there's another part of National Grid called National Grid ESO, the electricity system operator. Mm -hmm. Um, And they are six minutes from where I'm sat now. I watched them build the building when I was 11 years old that they now sit in. So, yes, my relationship with National Grid goes back even further. <laughs> so the, the electricity system operators, so what they do is they are doing the forecasting of consumption. They are the ones who are asking in the energy market power stations to turn up or to turn down to meet the demand uh, of the country. You know, They're the people who um, worry about, well, you know, the, 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 the Jubilee celebrations, you know, how many people are going to stop at what point and have a cup of tea and flush the loo and open the fridge, right? So they are doing all those sort of bits and pieces. And they also do that future scenario planning. So that's a separate bit of National Grid to the bit that I work for. Um, It's an essential bit. But again, that bit of the business doesn't buy or sell electricity. It asks, it contracts with generators to do more or to do less to balance the system. I hope that gives you a bit of a fuller answer. It does. Let Let me just clarify if we sort of take what you've said and apply it to the road network you own the motorways you own the a roads do you yep. do you own the b roads that sort of nope. go no, out no no so no. The, the region the region so if you if you imagine that national grid owns motorways and dual carriageways yeah and then the regional dnos so uk power networks western power distribution sseen you know you'll know who is 
owns the substation at the end of your road, if you look mm-hmm. on the sticker on the side, mm-hmm. they are the A roads, B roads, and the country roads of the energy system. They're the last mile into homes and businesses. And then if we think about the ESO, the best way to probably describe ESO in road terms is they own the traffic lights and matrix signs. Oh, yeah, right. I'm trying to think of the nearest road analogy, right? That's what they do. I like that. Uh, they're also the ones who have that nifty little app that shows you what the carbon intensity is uh, at any given point. Am I right? Yes, ab- absolutely. They're the guys who created the carbon intensity API. So um, my home charger only charges when the grid is cleanest and cheapest. So it takes an API, a digital signal from my supplier, and it takes the National Grid ESO carbon intensity API. And so it means that my charger only works when the grid is both cleanest and cheapest. So yes, they do that as well. Now, I have been following with a little bit of interest the brand new charging hub that they're putting in in Oxford, in one of the park and rides there. And one of the reasons that it interests me a lot is because they've said that they've taken their however powerful a a feed it is directly from the grid rather than going through a local uh, power station. So they can just more or less keep adding on charges up to to a point at which somebody's going to shout stop. But is that something that is being provided through the national grid part of things or is that still going through a DNO at the local level? Oh, no, that's a really good one. So this is, you know, this is where the way things have been done aren't necessarily the way things will be done going forward. So let me pick up a few things. So um, the Oxford Charging Hub is a first of its kind. Mm-hmm. And what you have there is a, a variety of things going on, as well as just EV charging. They're doing some heat stuff as well, and some storage and flexibility. So um, what you have there is uh, you have an organization called Pivot Power who have contracted with National Grid to connect, I think it's a 49 megawatt battery, um, a a transmission substation, and then they are uh, supplying the power down to the charging stations. Now, there's a couple of things that apply there. So so firstly, um, normally you wouldn't plug a charger in directly into National Grid because we deal with much, much bigger stuff generally, Mm -hmm. um, and therefore probably not cost effective for 10 chargers or 30 chargers or even 40 chargers, right? But what you have there is a number of, of I guess, opportunities coming together. So in a world where we have more renewables on the grid, so the grid is the cleanest it's ever been and getting cleaner, but that means renewables turn up when the sun shines and the wind blows. So flexibility becomes really quite important. So what you have um, at Oxford is battery storage to provide flexibility. So uh, they will be contracting with the ESO, so the battery company contracts with National Grid Transmission, myself, to plug in. They offer services to uh, the ESO, so balancing and grid services, so voltage control, frequency response, I mean, quite uh, geeky energy things, but basically flexibility to make sure the grid is stable. Um, and downstream of the battery, they're able to plug in multiple chargers because they can manage the capacity. So what you have there is a sort of a first of its kind hub that is actually you know, transmission connected. So um, it'll be really interesting. I mean, it's, it's due to be opened in the next month or so. And I'm very keen to go and actually see it in anger and having been involved with it from the outset. Oh, as am I. That's um, it's about an hour from where I am. So uh, that'd be a nice little journey for me one day when it gets opened. Uh, looking forward yeah, to absolutely. that. We've heard many, many times people like Robert Llewellyn likes to to state this. Um Everybody says the grid won't cope if everyone has to plug their cars in at the same time. And, you know, that's 
blatant nonsense. Uh, and I believe the national grid has stated that on several times. But oh, well, can I can I can I can I cut through that? So theoretically, <laughs> if everybody switched everything on all at the same time, then there isn't enough power to do everything all at the same time. But we never do. <laughs> so um, so let's pick that up as as a really interesting one. So so firstly, um, the energy system, be it at transmission or distribution, we work on the basis of diversity, right? Not everybody does everything at the same time. So. Yes, there are areas where more people do similar things at the same time. So if I'm thinking about most people get up in the morning mm -hmm. and they have breakfast and they go to work, right? Yeah. So there is a predominance of consumption at, you know, between seven and nine. In the same time, at the other end of the day, there is a predominance of demand at the end of the day. So people come home from their their normal work and kids from school and you know they have a shower and make dinner and put the washing on and what have you so and put lights on so there are times in the day where more energy is used so the thing that sort of irks me a little bit about the question if everybody electrified all transport and we all charged it simultaneously is there enough power the answer is there probably isn't but that will never happen because it's going to take us Till the late 2050s until transport is decarbonized and the one thing that is great about evs um, and and a lot of you know electric electrification of transport decarbonization of transport is you actually want to be able to do it in the troughs of the day so when there's less demand on the energy system and when there's a greater predominance of clean energy so if the question is can the grid cope with decarbonisation? The answer is absolutely yes. It can't not cope. But also, people seem to think that um, the, what they're seeing is suddenly changing the grid. The grid has been changing for the last 20 years. So the grid was principally dirty, you know, mainly coal, a bit of gas, mm -hmm. um, back in the 80s. The grid is now more than 50% of the energy made in the UK today is clean, comes from clean sources. So, you know, not burning stuff. Now, the difference here is you, most people in the world have not seen the move away from coal, uh, or in the UK, the move away from coal into gas and more nuclear and more wind and more solar because, well, it doesn't happen in their immediate environment, right? Yeah. Whereas suddenly seeing an EV on a driveway suddenly thinks everything in electricity is changing because there's an EV in the driveway. <laughs> well, okay, it's not. This, this, I mean, this is why for me, people seem to think that moving towards clean transport is a cliff edge it is just for us as the energy system another step in a 20 or 30 year so far changing energy system that will continue to evolve for the next 20 or 30 and so um i mean to give you some context also that that you know if we if we let's map forward right so to try and better answer your question if we map forward to 2050 the uk will consume probably a bit more than twice the electricity consumption we have today mm -hmm. that will mean that we will have to have probably four times the amount of clean generation than we have today mm -hmm. and that will mean we need roughly twice the grid capacity than we have today now of that 100 percent growth in demand decarbonizing transport is probably only 20 percent decarbonizing heat is somewhere between 50 and 60 percent of that so actually um you know on the journey to decarbonize the UK, uh, going EV is probably one of the easier things. I didn't say easy, it's just one of the easier things to do. You know, decarbonizing things like heat and then concrete and steel becomes more complicated, but that's why we need to move at pace. But to go back to your original question, will the energy system cope with the shift to EVs? Yes, it will. Um, 
will there be enough electricity? Yes, there will. Um, uh, you know, we might do uh, clever things like smart charging um, to minimize the cost and to optimize the clean generation and to minimize the, you know, the cost of tariffs. But um, other than that, there is no reason why, uh, why the grid will, will not, not cope. Is it fair to say, though, that at the local level, uh, there may be some infrastructure challenges. I mean, if you go out to some of the charging wastelands in Mid Wales or up around the Lake District, they, is it fair to say they may not have the level of infrastructure needed to, at the moment, to deal with an uptake of electric vehicles? Oh, that's a really good one. So firstly, even transmission, there's no transmission in the middle of Wales. So it doesn't matter whether it's transmission or distribution, you know, middle of Wales is a, is a bit of a desert when it comes to wires. Mm. Um, but let, let, let me come back to my original comment. So on the journey to net zero, more than double the consumption, more than four times the amount of clean generation, more than twice the grid capacity. So grid networks are forever changing. OK, we've seen sort of the big industrial northwest, lots of consumption disappear because we're building less things in the country. But then we've seen growth in you know, early electrification of cars demanding more in UK power networks area in the, in the home counties, right? Mm -hmm. So networks are always having to evolve. But like all these things, networks respond to market signals. Now, we've traditionally responded to very obvious signals. You know, somebody wants to build a housing estate. They put a grid application in. We have a couple of years whilst they build the houses to think about bringing wires. This is no different. It's just, I guess, you know, Running brand new, you know, you see, you want to just put four charges down somewhere where there isn't any grid. Well, starting on first principles, the first problem is, is there isn't any grid. So you're going to have to bring some wires, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think that the challenge here is, is just the pace of EVs is going faster than the traditional markets we've seen. Um, the regulatory environment that sets us up to minimize cost to consumers, um, was great in the eighties and nineties and noughties. Um, but sort of needs to evolve to be match fit for net zero. And so mm -hmm. you know, we see Ofgem, our regulator, and the DNO's regulator look to evolve how regulation works so that we can do more anticipatory investment, you know, put wires in ahead of need rather than wait for somebody to ask for them. Um, so, yes, I mean, no changes without wrinkles, right? I, I would be foolish to say there won't be any wrinkles. But in the grand scheme of things, um, you know, the combination of uh, regulator evolving how they regulate networks looking to do anticipatory investment you know there isn't an instruction book for electrifying transport um, and so there's an element of you have to go do try break it evolve try further try different do again and revisit um, and so there is an element of that going on um, and so yeah you could see um, either people getting disgruntled that a grid connection cost is expensive for a particular uh, charging area or you might find that somebody has to wait for a transformer to be upgraded um, that doesn't mean the grid has somehow failed. It's just, um, I guess, growing pains and just evolution of the market. Yeah. Now, you mentioned earlier uh, we're currently running, I assume, on average, around 50% renewables on the grid. The big ding that goes against renewables, obviously, is, well, the sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't always blow. And, I mean, if I look back over the last 24 hours, I think wind alone has been down to around 16% of generation. Can we ever get enough renewables to cover a base load? Oh, well, so firstly, you're, you're mixing two things a little bit. So, um, to, so, so just to challenge. So, so for those listening, you know, base load is kind of, uh, traditionally been met by nuclear and generally, you know, it, it's a point of, and we call it base load because as a country, we don't use any less than, right? It's, it's kind of the, the, the parasitic load of the country. 
So, so firstly, um, to try and split the two, let, let's do base load first. So, um, nuclear is is the 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 uh, primarily the driver of base load at the moment because nuclear power is very difficult to kind of turn it up, turn it down, turn it up, turn it down across the day. They like to be on and stable. Um, we will have more nuclear. So, if you look at the British Energy Security Strategy. There is an ambition to have more nuclear on the system. So we will have, for probably the rest of my lifetime and, and probably those listening, nuclear on the bars providing baseload. Um, we can't get to net zero without nuclear. So I know sometimes nuclear is quite a, you know, you, you, are, you either just accept it or you hate it. Um, on the journey to net zero, I, I don't believe we can truly get there without it. So um, we have to, I guess, at some level accept that. Um, but that will be there for baseload. And even if you don't necessarily have it for baseload, there's always generation somewhere. We also have a variety of things going on like interconnection. So um, I think there are, where are we today? We've got, I think, six live operational interconnectors today. There are 11 either live or in development or in construction. So connecting with other markets, again, is part of that landscape. Demand side management. So, you know, at the moment, the the generation end of the wires has been the bit that turns up and turns down to meet consumer demand. But in the world we're moving into with demand side uh, participation, so, so we've seen um, smart tariffs, you know, the ability to be paid to take electricity when there's too much, the ability for people to store it, the uh, time of use tariffs. So what in, in the past, we've seen the energy system, only one end turn up and turn down to meet demand. Now, actually, we can have consumption turn up and turn down to meet generation. So the world is moving in a different way. Um, and what does that mean? Well, by 2025, the National Grid ESO, the control room part of National Grid, they've committed to be able to run the country entirely clean for a period of time. Now, in the first day, it'll be 10 minutes. Um, then they'll work out, did that work? And what do they do next? And, it, and that time will grow. But actually, we have a, a, an obligation from the UK government to have the power system in the UK clean by 2035. So in answer to your question, and I think I've sort of tried to justify it, um, we have to get to a clean power system by 2035. So when people talk about all oh, the journey to net zero, I'm not thinking about 2050. I'm thinking about 2035. Interesting. So, <laughs> I mean, I had a, a question here which said, and I'll, I'll quote it out to you. Nuclear energy, a poison challenge which provides lots of good stuff but can impart a heavy cost or a good thing to be embraced and expanded. And I think you've come down on the side of, well, whether we like it or not, it's probably going to be there. So we're going to have so, to yeah, so can I, well, can I, can I, well, let's clarify that. So from a national grid perspective, right, um, I don't decide what plugs into national grid, right? Mm -hmm. um, anybody can make a power station and anybody can ask for a grid connection and anybody can plug in their power station to the grid connection and, and we have to accept that as long as they meet a bunch of criteria, okay? So mm -hmm. this is not as dictated by national grid. However, for those uh, listeners who want to kind of have a good feel for what the energy landscape looks like. If you go on to the Committee on Climate Change, so the CCC, Committee on Climate Change, they are the independent body that looks at the you know, journey to net zero and, and the, the, the transition that we're in um, and advises government on, on policies to help you get there. They're also the body that keeps the kind of the scorecard on how government are doing. And they're the guys who, the, the folks who do the, um, I guess, the carbon budget setting, yes? If we need to get to net zero, what do you need to do by when? And are we on track for that? Now, if you go onto their website, 
So the Committee on Climate Change, you can Google it. Look at the sixth carbon budget, which is the last assessment they did. And in that, they have three scenarios, the high hydrogen scenario, the low hydrogen scenario, and the balanced pathway. Now, as a professional in the energy system, I kind of look at the balanced pathway to be the nearest you get to an instruction book to get to net zero from an energy system. Now, I'm not saying that they're right. I'm also not saying that they're wrong, but there's an awful lot of good analysis in there. And broadly, what that shows is there is no single bullet to running the country on which energy system. You need a mixture of everything. But what it also does is it sort of lays out for you um, what it is that you do need. And under all of their scenarios, as I've observed them, nuclear plays a role. Mm -hmm. So that tells me in a roundabout way that we can't get to net zero without it. Um, so it's not, it is absolutely not a national grid thing. We don't say we want a new nuclear power station, or we don't. If somebody builds one and they ask for a grid connection, we are duty bound to provide it for them. So it's not about, yeah, we're not here to pick winners, we're technology agnostic. Um, but what I observe in the broader marketplace and the CCC sixth carbon budget balance pathway is a really good place to observe what the country thinks the energy makeup will be by 2050. What I would like <laughs> to do is just talk very quickly, or have you talked very quickly about, yeah, the legislation over smart charging. And I also want to talk about uh, Project Rapid Delivery Body. Analysis. Okay, so let's do two things very quickly. So smart charging legis legislation. So I was asked three and a half years ago to sit on the government's EV energy task force. And part of that was, how do we make sure that the transition to clean transport benefits everybody in the same way, that there aren't undue costs? And it was through the lens of the consumer. Now, your listeners may not know it, but the cost of the grid is socialized across everybody, right? So it's, you know, that daily standing charge, mm -hmm. a little bit of that daily standing charge pays for the DNO in your area and a little bit for national grid. So on a typical dual fuel bill, national grid is £20 a year, £20.70 a year. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so, so the grid is socialized. If you don't have smart charging, then theoretically, everybody could choose to charge their car in the middle of the evening peak. And what that will do is that will mean the drive for more power stations and more wires. Now, if you think about that, all of those costs ultimately fall onto your energy bill. Why would we needlessly build more wires um, when we can avoid building wires, right? Now, you would think as a business that builds wires, I'd want to build wires. No, genuinely, um, I want to build less wires. And so what we observed is if you, you know, charge your car away from those peak times, two things happen. You are often accessing cheaper energy tariffs, but you're also avoiding having to build more grid. And so the smart uh, the smart um, legislation was a recommendation that the the EV Energy Task Force made to government about two years ago, and that comes into that being law at the end of this month. So 30th of June, that becomes law. So chargers sold and deployed and fitted after the 30th of June have to be smart. Now that basically means out of the box by default they won't charge at peak times. But if you want to do something clever around you know, a time-based tariff or a signal from your energy provider, then you can do that over the top instead of. But the, and you can override if you really have an urgent need. It's just that override has a cost to it because you're, you're driving the need for more wires. So that's, that's smart charging and why it's good for consumers. It's not about government or anybody else controlling uh, 
controlling how you live or drive. Graham, tell me about Project Rapid. Okay, so um, crikey, nearly four years ago, uh, yeah, to give you some context, government asked National Grid, how would National Grid overcome range anxiety? And that was a really odd question because National Grid don't make EVs and mm-hmm. don't do chargers. And as we mentioned before, we don't buy or sell electricity. But it was an interesting challenge laid down to us. So what we did was some really clever engineering because we've got some amazing, we're an amazing engineering-led business. We took all of the road data and pretended they were electrons. We took all the, the, the so that was all the traffic data. We pretended those were electrons on, on a grid. We took all the road data and pretended they were wires. And what we did effectively is asked our modeling tool, where are the optimum nodes on the network? Then we took those nodes and put them back into the road network. And so about four years ago, um, and if you Google, I'm sure you'll find it, we concluded that 54 strategic sites on the motorway network would cover 99.6% of the driven population for 50 driven miles in any direction. Now, that was great because it gave us at least an answer to the question. And we then gave that information back to government and said, well, there you go. That's minimum viable product. If you want to you know, get a wriggle on with, uh, with um, decarbonizing transport, there you go. Those are the first 54 locations you should start with. What was quite nice was they took that on board and went, well, that's brilliant. Thank you. Um, but there are 100-ish um, motorway service areas. I think it's 113 motorway service areas. And we went, well, yes. And they said, well, okay, could you redo the model with 113 motorway service areas? So we went away and redid the model. And that sort of became what has become government's project rapid. But let's be really clear. Most charging will happen at home or your workplace or destinations. Mm-hmm. The high power on route stuff will be by volume of, of um by volume of electricity consumed, probably only eight or ten percent of energy going into vehicles will be high power on route. But they're sort of the critical high power route because most people drive 37 miles a day. You know, the average in, in the UK is 37 miles a day for an average car. And if you have a second car, it only does eleven miles a day. So, you know, most electric vehicles are at two or three hundred mile range these days. So you know, there's not a problem. But we are, as humans, slightly flawed because we don't buy for average. We generally buy for the biggest single thing you'll ever need a car to do, which is that <laughs> once in a blue moon, you know, trip to see granny in John O'Groats from Land's End, right? Yeah. So to be able to have the confidence to have an EV for that once in a blue moon journey, confidence is only derived by having consistency and continuity in charging. So as long as you can charge your car, not have to worry about it, um, and do that in the time that you'd stop for a comfort break anyway, then that's probably a pretty good answer. So um, that sort of became government's project rapid. So, you know, you know National Grid isn't a government body, but we, we helped provide data for them to, to kind of come up with a strategy. Broadly, what the project rapid, government's project rapid strategy says is six ultra rapid charge points at every motorway service area by 2023, and probably 3,000 ultra-rapids by 2030, and 6,000 ultra-rapids by 2035 is broadly what Project Rapid said. Now, I guess what that then leads you on to is then, well, why do we have the Rapid Charging Fund and 950 million? Well, what you realise is motorway service areas are generally halfway between somewhere and somewhere else. So if you think about it, that's why they're why they're there. But that often means that the bit of grid network they're on is is often the very end of the very edge of the of the grid network. And therefore upgrading them becomes a little bit 
expensive. And so what we saw was charge point companies saying, well, they're ready to deploy the charges, don't need any support or, or funding for that. But when they're presented with a tens and hundreds and even millions of pounds with a grid connection cost with a market that was still only one or two percent of cars on the road being electric it's very difficult to put a business case to be able to afford a grid connection asset that's going to last 40 years so what government observed was a market failure and you know governments tend to just like markets to get on with fixing the problem but they will intervene where they see a market failure and so what they saw is a future-proof grid capacity to be able to, for charge point operators to deploy and then scale as the market matures was a barrier. And so they uh, announced a £950 million fund, and that is to provide adequate future-proof grid capacity along the SRN, the Strategic Road Network. So it's not just about motorways, this is about motorways and strategic A roads. So at the moment, we're in a spot where we are waiting for the announcement of the delivery body because somebody has to hold the money and ask for a grid connection. I think that will be announced later this year. And um, yeah, I guess, you know, then we can roll up our sleeves and get on with it. Um, so that's what I know about uh, Project Rapid and the Rapid Charging Fund. Um, some of them will be delivered by transmission and some of them will be delivered by distribution. And is that over and above what's already happening with certain charge point operators at certain locations where they've gone ahead and put six seven or eight charges in a yeah room. absolutely so so what what if you dig into the detail of government's project rapid what it said was for the 2023 objective so you know the six ultra rapids by 2023 mm -hmm. that was to be done without any intervention intervention from government other than you had to meet the target and therefore what you've seen is the likes of charge point companies have bought enough grid capacity uh, or they're living with what limited grid capacity is there to try and deliver those six ultra rapid charges. But if you think about it, next time you're in a, in a motorway uh, service area, count the number of petrol pumps. There's normally about 20. And if you think about the dwell time for a petrol pump, it's anywhere between three and seven minutes. Mm -hmm. Think about the dwell time on an EV. It's usually between sort of 15 minutes and 40 minutes, right? Yep. Um, so you're gonna need many more charges. So the, the challenge that you've got is, I guess the six ultra rapids is the tip of the iceberg for the very early adopters, but we're gonna end the sale as a country of combustion engine cars by 2030. So this needs to scale quite quickly. And that's why the Project Rapid Fund is going to go above and beyond what those who are already doing you know, have done. Because this isn't about the early adopters. This is about making sure there's future-proof capacity when we go to early majority and then mass majority, um, which will obviously happen between now and about 2035. Excellent. Greg, there is so much more I want to talk to you about, but uh, we'll have to get you back on on a, a later episode when uh, we're not so absolutely the time. No, so. no problem at all. This is a huge subject. It is complex, but also I'm really conscious that um, your, your listeners are a really sharp bunch and yes. they deserve really full and rich answers. So I've hoped I've delivered that for you. But if you want to come back and invite me back again, I'm very happy to do so. I really appreciate that, Graham. Thank you very much for your time. It's time for a cool EV or renewable thing to share with you listeners. One of my first cars was an 850cc Austin Mini, which had a 1.3 litre Morris engine installed. It was fantastic. One of the most fun cars I ever drove. Now, it seems that converting Minis to electric has become a bit of a thing and one in particular caught my eye. Mini has come up with something really special, an EV conversion of the 1998 Mini Paul Smith edition, a limited run model built in 1,500 units. 
The engine is replaced with a 72 kilowatt motor and the interior features a radical minimalist approach inspired by last year's mini strip concept, which was also designed by Sir Paul Smith. The cabin deliberately lacks trim parts with the body shell exposing its bare, unclad floor pan, while the rustic floor mats are made of recycled rubber on top. The vehicle also features sustainable materials, a removable steering wheel, and a magnet next to it that accommodates the smartphone, which replaces almost all the old buttons and functions on the dashboard. Click the link to check out the look of the vehicle, which has a lovely paint job and some fantastic interior design features. The EV Musings podcast is sponsored by ZapMap. ZapMap is the go-to app for EV drivers in the UK. Use it to search for available chargers, plan electric journeys, pay for charging on participating networks, and share updates with other EV drivers. ZapMap is free to download and use, with subscription plans for enhanced features, such as using ZapMap in car, on CarPlay, or Android Auto. And that's the show for today. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you want to contact me, I can be emailed at evmusings at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at MusingsEV. If you want to support the podcast and newsletter, please consider contributing to becoming an EV Musings patron. The link's in the show notes. Don't want to sign up for something on a monthly basis? Well, if you enjoyed this episode, why not buy me a coffee? Go to coffee.com slash evmusings and you can do just that, ko-fi.com. If you want a quick reference ebook to read on your Kindle, I wrote a little something called So You've Gone Electric. It's available on Amazon Worldwide for the measly sum of 99p or equivalent, and it's a great little introduction to living with an electric car. Please check it out. Links for everything we've talked about in the podcast today are in the description. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe. It's available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a review as it helps raise visibility and extend our reach in search engines. If you've reached this part of the podcast and are still listening, thank you. It's getting more and more of you every uh, every episode, which is uh, good to hear. Why not let me know you've got to this point by tweeting me at MusingTV with the words, it's like a road network for electrons. Hashtag, if you know, you know. Nothing else. Thanks as always to my co-founder, Simon. You know, he's been in his job quite a while now and he's been looking for a new role somewhere. He saw an advert for a tightrope walker. I asked him how working in his current job, project managing the implementation of water recycling tubing in senior citizens' homes, would help him become a tightrope walker. He told me, The cold reality for me is there was lots of my skills that were transferable, but not all of them. Thanks for listening. Bye.